Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. The following podcast contains explicit language. The White House put out some talking points tonight. Uh, This is what they say. The president was entirely correct. Both sides of the violence in Charlottesville acted inappropriately and bear some responsibility. There's another one that says he has been a voice for unity and calm. Uh, This is Alice in in Wonderland stuff. Uh, You know, I think we saw the president's true colors today, and, and I'm not sure they were red, white and blue. We see the soul of him when he's flying off the handle and when he's tweeting. Why, for the president, does it seem easier to suggest U.S. intelligence operatives are behaving like Nazis than to call these actual Nazis Nazis? Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who says he actually owns one of the largest wineries in the United States, in Charlottesville. Actually, it's not even close to being one of the largest wineries, even on the East Coast. I'm Jacob Weisberg, here with Virginia Heffernan. Are you calling the president a liar? Jacob, That's I think that's tantamount to sedition here. He's been known to be hyperbolic on occasion. Yeah, but just just, just be cautious. Let's fact check carefully. We want to, we want to get the facts first before we pass judgment. His, I think his winery produces 36,000 cases of wine a year. The Gallo winery produces 10 times that. Fake news. (laughs) Yeah, that's what he was yelling at the press conference yesterday. Jesus Christ. Did you see it? Oh, my God. I think we might need to break out a bottle of uh, Antifa. That's anti-fascist wine from a different winery in order to discuss this one. I just I don't think the good is beating the bad today. People were very upset last night. And Jamel Bowie is going to join us in a minute. But, you know, I'm a perennial optimist. I sort of saw the end of the Trump presidency. Now, I've seen it before. But I think there's a way in which he's not able to govern after what he said yesterday. Like in a 25th Amendment way? No, I don't think his own cabinet will remove him. But in a completely incapacitated, ineffectual way, his government falling apart and essentially, you know, he could be a lame duck for three years. He could be a lame duck until he's impeached. But I don't see him having any potential to be an effective president after that. I am going to park my faith in you today and let's see if let's see where Jamel is. After this, Virginia, we're going to do a Slate Plus segment. I have a question I want to ask you, which is basically what are the kind of decent people in the Trump administration like Dina Powell and maybe Gary Cohn and these people 
H.R. McMaster, people were kind of looking to to protect us from Donald Trump. What should they do now? Do we want them to stay or do we want them to go? I mean, maybe they should just be continue to be concerned, write in their diaries, vote their time. Maybe something will happen with infrastructure. Or maybe they should call him out and call the, this, like, the crisis that it is and issue an official censure. I mean, these are not difficult moral decisions, right? We're going to talk about this after the show on our Slate Plus segment. Join Slate Plus today, and you'll be able to hear that and get lots of other bonus content from Slate Podcasts, plus an ad-free feed. Go to slate.com slash trumpcast plus. I also want to mention the live show we have coming up in Austin, Texas. Can't wait. Austin has the best barbecue, and we're going to get some Virginia. Can there be ranch dressing? We don't tell anyone, but ranch dressing is what I do in Austin. Ew. (laughs) (laughs) There's barbecue, there's people, and there is Trumpcast live. You can have whatever you want on your barbecue. (laughs) We have special guests. Uh, And it's going to be fun, and you can get tickets for it at slate.com slash live. That's slate.com slash live. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. I'm Jacob Weisberg here with Virginia Heffernan and Jamel Bowie for a kind of emergency meeting of the Trumpcast Council of Elders. Um, <laughs> before <laughs> they disband us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it will be fi- he'll, Trump will have to fire us before we quit. Actually, if he fires himself, we will quit. That's part of our deal. <laughs> it's, it's, it's written in the contract. Um, but we're here because of the amazing, astonishing, horrifying press conference Trump had yesterday at Trump Tower when he, what else can we say, defended white supremacists, people who protested on the side of neo-Nazis and members of the KKK and there's been an incredible reaction in the pe- overnight in the past few hours. But I guess I wanted to start by asking you, Jamel, what Trump said that was new. I mean, what what did he do yesterday that he hasn't done in one form or another before? I think the difference between yesterday and most of his um, statements regarding sort of racism and, and, and such was that he just – a, he was passionate about it, which I think took people aback. He was clearly very animated by the idea that the uh, Unite the Right protesters were in any way disruptive or um, in the wrong. And I think the extent to which he had no qualms trying to position those protesters as the victims in the situation was also jarring. I think you also can't escape the fact that uh, someone died on Saturday. Someone was killed as a result of the white supremacist protest, or you know, one of the the, the person currently um, in custody is, is an alleged member of all of that. 
So if nothing else, the fact that even if nothing Trump said was new or different, the fact that he said it in that context um, made it, I think, all the more shocking. I mean, there is there is a funny line, isn't there, between, on the one hand, Islamophobia and anti-Latino racism, which in many ways are, are code for other kinds of bigotry. But you can kind of get away with that. But you can't get away in the same way with explicitly anti-black racism or anti-Semitism. Is that, is that right? Is that the line he crossed? I you used to not be able to get away with Islamophobia and saying Mexicans are racists. Then Trump moved that line. And now you can't, can get away with that and can't get away with this other thing. And now it remains to be seen if he can get away with this other thing. I mean, I thought there was a lot in. I want to hear a little more also, Jamel, your take on what he said about Robert E. Lee and, and the equivalency with George Washington, Thomas Jefferson. That seemed important to him. And I know that's something that you've written about. You know, it was important to Trump's argument that he single out certain of the, what do you say, like fine young men or, you know, with the Unite the Right crowd who were just there to defend the statue of Robert E. Lee. And if we object to the statue of Robert E. Lee, where will it lead next? You know, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, he shot that back at the press and that seemed like an interesting detour, but also something that you could illuminate for us. Yeah. So two things. First, on the um, on the question of did Trump cross a line with anti-black racism, I think that I think that is exactly it. Um, there's an extent to which even before Trump, anti-Latino and anti-Muslim racism were basically not socially acceptable. Like if you made those kind of statements in kind of polite company, you would get criticized for it. But they were at the very least, you could dog whistle towards them, you could gesture towards them and kind of escape major sanction. They kind of, they occupied the role that, say, anti-Asian racism played in the 80s, and even to some extent now. But in sort of, in defending quite openly the white supremacists and neo-Nazis who came to Charlottesville, I think I think Trump did cross that line into apologizing for anti-black racism, which I think across the board in our politics is kind of verboten, even as dog whistles are, are still in wide use in politics. To um, get to your uh, question, though, Virginia, I found that I, – I, so this that is something I did find shocking, right? I've spent entirely too much time of my life uh, reading uh, neo-Confederate apology, um, and kind of immersed in that world. And the, that comparison, um, if, if Robert E. Lee now, then George, what about George Washington next is sort of like typical of those arguments, elevating Lee and Trump also mentioned Stonewall Jackson. And there's also a Stonewall Jackson statue in Charlottesville, elevating those two figures with men like Washington and Jefferson. And even among mainstream conservatives, you see um, statements like, oh, there's a slippery slope between taking on these statues and taking on someone like Jefferson. And I think... First they came for the Confederate generals. (laughs) (laughs) Then they came for the ordinary Confederate soldiers. (laughs) Then they came for the founding fathers. Then they came for me. So if I'm reading that, that, that stuff like in good faith, then I think the error they're making is that they, they're, they're saying, okay, Lee was a slaveholder, Jefferson was a slaveholder, so what distinguishes the two? Why not take Jefferson down along with Lee? The answer is that 
yes, Jefferson was a slaveholder, Washington were slaveholders, but the reason we memorialize them is not because of their slaveholding. We memorialize them because, you know, one wrote the Declaration of Independence, one uh, led uh, Continental Armies and basically like formed the model for the presidency. And while they're in their public memory should include the fact that they own slaves, and I think it should be pretty central to how we remember them, in terms of memorializing, there is material for creating sort of a broad, a broadly um, acceptable, a broadly a narrative that everyone can buy into. I mean, that was basically the whole project of the, the musical Hamilton. Lee is only famous because he led Confederate armies. If secession had never happened, if the Confederacy had never come into existence, Lee would have lived his life and died as an obscure member of the United States military. His meaning is you can't untangle it from the Confederacy. And if you look at even sort of like a, a cursory history of the of the memorialization of the Confederacy, it all pops up in the 1890s and 1900s, 1910s, as Jim Crow is being codified. It was These things were explicitly raised as symbols of Jim Crow and of white supremacy. So Trump's comparison there is, is I mean, it's dumb. Um, it doesn't make, really make any sense. And the, the notion that there's some slippery slope is also dumb. I, I Getting at first the, the pact made after the Civil War and, and you know, the, the general consensus that Lee lost and was like on the side against the Republic, the pact that we now share, and then finally getting down to bedrock with what is this country all about, the one that Orrin Hatch's brother died for fighting the Nazis. That is another thing, the support beam that Trump is willing to kick down. It, it just felt like anarchy or chaos. I see people reviving um, Jeb Bush's prediction that Trump would be the chaos president, that he was the chaos candidate. And it really was like, there is really nothing sacred here. I mean, if you look at the transcript of the that press conference yesterday, yeah. it keeps being uh, punctuated by the phrase "reporters continue yelling indistinctly." Unbelievable. I mean, it was kind of like a a, a fight between the reporters and Trump. I mean, it was it was like totally uh, like undignified, even as you know a, a, as any kind of presidential appearance or press conference. But I guess the you know thing I want to ask both of you about, and maybe starting with you, Jamel is about the sort of context for what's going on here. So one way to look at what's happened in Charlottesville is you have an emboldened alt-right and that Trump's election has given permission to these people and that, you know, and, and, and that the racist right is on the march. Another way of looking at it is that we are going through a moment, a sort of racial justice moment, and the movement against mass incarceration, against unjustified police killings and violence against African-Americans and the take down, taking down of these Confederate statues and monuments all over the South and the question about what you can, whether you should do that or not, but the fact that it's happening is a kind of revolutionary moment in the other direction and that what you're getting is a reaction to that, which you got to expect you're going to have to some extent, but the, the 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 motive power is towards racial justice and racial change. So you know you can take a you could take a you could take a very negative view of what's happening, or in a funny way you could take a positive view of what's happening. How do you see it? I, mean, I think I see it as as kind of a both and. Um, I think there is this larger backlash that has its roots in Obama's election and has intensified as I think the demands of groups like black Americans and transgender Americans and immigrants have uh, intensified over the past couple of years. 
but it's also true as you, as as you just said that we're also in this moment where there is a kind of a growing consensus among the need to move forward on arresting racial inequality, um, arresting inequality in the justice system, of reconfiguring and, re- and rethinking our public memory. And I'll say that this, I mean, this has always been the dynamic. The backlash to Reconstruction happened during Reconstruction as well as sort of afterwards. The backlash to the Civil Rights Movement happened during the Civil Rights Movement as well as afterwards. And and the larger question is sort of what is the what is the the broader context under under which all of this is happening? And so to use Reconstruction as an example, the initial backlash couldn't really sustain itself because the federal government was still mostly committed to um, uh, reconstructing the South in a way that preserved uh, sort of black autonomy and and furthered black political power. When that commitment ended, then the backlash took the form that we we ultimately got that it, it succeeded. I mean, lots of these statues, you know, were put up not after the Civil War. They were put up in the 1920s when you had this kind of pro-Confederate resurgence, the, mo- the 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 period of birth of a nation and when the Klan came back and mm-hmm. became sort of reborn as an organization. We never had, after the Civil Rights Movement, you know, any kind of Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Hmm. You know, we never readdressed that history. The approach of the federal government was to change the laws and get people to move on which, without calling white Southerners fully to account. That's what's happening in a way now. I mean, these statues should have come down in the 1960s and 1970s. Instead, they're happening in the it's happening late 2010s. But there's not much doubt in my mind that those Confederate statues are coming down. I mean, not necessarily every single one of them in every place, but hundreds of Confederate monuments are going to come down in the South and they are going to be replaced by civil rights uh, monuments over the next generation. I mean, I promised my mom I wouldn't slag off UVA today, and I won't. I know Jamel and I have talked about both being alumni and and having different feelings about it. But the idea post-civil rights that things like the Robert E. Lee Monument could survive in Charlottesville, that kind of the Southern antebellum masquerade that like we saw Jamel and I did at parties and at uh, ways people comported themselves um, in sometimes explicitly, implicitly racist ways in social life and culture was that, well, the South will live on in culture, like it'll live on in things like statues, and we'll like let them have that, like this gesture of like, you know, watching Gone with the Wind or, you know, the guilty pleasure of going to parties where the staff basically stands in slave uniforms and some of the country parties. Jamel, I don't know if that was still true when you were there. And then the culture... I mean, I guess I'm really influenced by, did you all see the uh, Vice HBO documentary about the Charlottesville, about Charlottesville? It was like a kind of like Eichmann in Charlottesville profile, I thought, mostly of this uh, one of the neo-Nazis whose name I think is Christopher Cardwell. I'll look it up. Um, But he said the purpose of the demonstration was to make manifest what had been digital. So, you know, prove that neo-Nazis are not just a collection of memes, but they're flesh and blood people armed really to the teeth with semi-automatic weapons. And that this isn't just a kind of cultural kabuki or a cultural um, play acting that goes on online where people distribute, you know, hilarious pictures of Adolf Hitler, but that they can actually demonstrate and actually kill someone. Um, and at the end of this this documentary, I recommend everyone watch it. I mean, it's like a first draft of like an Eichmann in Jerusalem. Like you really saw the 
the banality of the of the logic, the intensity of the weapons. I mean, this guy takes off his weapons at the end of the day, celebrating the death of Heather Heyer, and he's unloading these weapons on the bed, and it's just like one after another after another in this jokey way, pulling out the guns, naming them, claiming he's lost track of how many there are. I, I just can't believe one man's body had this many guns on it. And he just is like, we won. Like, we won the day. We are real. We're not just a set of tropes and memes and, you know, bots. Sorry, Christopher Cantwell. I want to go back and say that's the name of the the neo-Nazi who's, among other things, profiled in this documentary. I think it's called, uh, well, now I'm leaving it to Jason to figure it out, but I think it's called Terror and Something in Charlottesville. Um, Vice and HBO managed to get it up, I think, on Sunday right after right after the march. So let's talk about where we are then. So, you know, you, you have this horrible, violent, revanchist cult. And the president, shockingly, morally and stupidly politically, has not been able to make a clear denunciation, that, you know, something that any moral or political idiot would know to do. Can he govern the country? I mean, it just we got the message right before we started recording that he's now disbanding these two councils, his manufacturing council and his economic council, basically because everybody on them, all the CEOs, Republican CEOs on them were quitting so fast that he you know, could barely disband it before all of them quit. How can he run the country? I mean, I, you know, he, the other the one of the it is interesting to make a list of the different people that Trump takes shots at during a period of his life. So it was McConnell before this and the saber rattling at, at Korea. But last night he had McCain in his sights. I mean, it was just it, like it, it is. I mean, you know, on the one hand, it's madness to go down the the road of his tone poems and his, you know, fury. But that particular press conference, you know, he hated the press. It had more than usual flare up of his immune system and like chronic abuse, like echolalic abuse of that phrase, fake news that he just threw out to shut everyone down. And then also John McCain. So he, you know, he wanted to remind everyone that John McCain and he had like, I don't know if if you guys can remember this or render it, but he had some like very sarcastic way of talking about McCain, like, oh, John McCain, the one who X, Y, Z, um, in but response he's done to one that of the reporter's before. questions. Virginia, I mean, he's, he's no, John McCain before. The question is, you know, let me ask Jamel, has just, he now done something that has undermined his legitimacy to the extent that we've essentially got a lame duck president in the White House whom, whether they will move to impeach him or attack him directly, no one is going to follow or support or take seriously. Is that the situation we're now in? Yeah, I've seen some folks refer to both Saturday and and now Tuesday as being Trump's Katrina moment. Um, And that phrase got a lot of uh, overuse during the Obama administration. But the way it's been used here, I think, is actually interesting. And and here, Katrina moment means not just a disaster, either policy-wise or public relations-wise, but one that reveals the fundamental weakness or fundamental flaw of the of the political figure or of the administration. I mean, I, 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 I don't want to jump on that, but I, I mean, I guess I'm feeling a little bit less sanguine than you guys today. Um, that might not be fair, but you know, we'd been waiting for something like Katrina. It's always like cited as some kind of FEMA event, the thing that would really show who Trump is or if he could rise to the occasion. This is not that. This is not an act of God. This is an act of emboldened, emboldened and, materially empowered and supported with, you know, the 
nexus of Bannon and Gorka and Miller. And then, you know, Trump's countenancing. It's like something beyond countenancing. Like, he's entertained these ideas. He's, you know, given sucker to them sometimes. And on these platforms that he that he frequents, and everything from Breitbart to some of the Russian sites, um, he's been, um, he's participated in the, like, influence ops around them, the tangle of information. Anyway, the point is, I think this is the president just flexing his muscles and taking shots at McCain and the other cuck Republicans who he now hates. And they still aren't saying anything specific. They're saying they're concerned. They're creasing their eyebrow, their whatever. But it's like potentially another Access Hollywood. It's just crazy to me. Yeah, I don't think it's Katrina. I think it's like the Nazis and the Russians are fucking here. <laughs> like it just that's what it feels like. And we have a president who's a Nazi sympathizer. And that's what he told us. Well, I we I may have said this before, but I think for that reason he did cross a bridge this week that he can't uncross. And boy, every week we say this was his most catastrophic week as president. He can't possibly do anything worse next week, and every week he manages to outdo himself and it's only Wednesday. I want to thank both of you. Jamel, Virginia, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Thank, thank you. That's it for our show today. Uh, Virginia, anything you want to plug? I don't think of this as plugging. I think of it as more like um, a command, an order. Follow Real Trumpcast on Twitter. You know you follow the substitutes. You follow those bros that love to talk about how bad Trump is. We are not that, except no substitutes. We are the first and only real podcast on real Donald Trump. It's called At Real Trumpcast. Follow us today. I might mention a Slate show you might not have listened to. It's Slate Money. Uh, it comes goes out Saturday morning, hosted by the excellent Felix Salmon with Jordan Weissman and Anna Zemanski. It's really an essential briefing on business and finance. And I know this week they're going to be talking about Trump ending his two business councils. I need to hear that. I love Slate Money. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. Virginia and I want to thank Jamel Bowie for joining us from Charlottesville. Thanks, Jamel. And thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.